you have your Bibles, you can get it out, but it will be up on the screen in front of you in a moment. Uh, how many of you guys uh, spend any time on Facebook at all? Yeah. How many of you have ever seen somebody post something on Facebook with quotations and multiple exclamation marks to validate the fact that what they have to say is absolute truth? Have you ever seen that? And how many of you have read that statement and thought, yeah, I don't know. Right? I have a statement. It's a one-liner off of Facebook. I'd like to read, and I'd like to know whether you think it's true or not. All right? So are you ready? This is for assessment purposes. All right? This, this is just kind of me checking to see whether you think this thing is true or not. All right? Here it is. This, this is just three words. Ready? Quote. Prayer changes things, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, end quote. Okay, let me say it again, because I want to make sure you guys can assess this properly. Quote, prayer changes things, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, end quote. All right, those of you who think it's true, raise your hand. Okay, put your hands down. Those of you that don't think it's true, raise your hand. <laughs> okay, those of you that are afraid. <laughs> okay, those of you that aren't quite sure, can you raise your hand? Thank you, all right. Uh, I actually do believe that one, mostly, kind of, a little bit. I do sometimes wonder, however, what exactly gets changed when we pray. And that's part of my wondering. Um, I'm sure that most of you guys pray, right? You guys pray once in a while. Do you guys like pray through a list sometimes? Do you have like a list of things you pray for? Uh, if you're like Karen and I, when we hear about somebody who has a need, uh, like we have a friend who's in the middle of chemo treatments right now, uh, except for this is a little bit more serious, so he spends this entire time, months, in the hospital getting chemo. And so we add him to our list. He's an old friend from our Elam days. And we have found that our list gets longer and longer and longer and longer to the point where when I am done praying at night, which is when Karen and I pray together, usually she will say something like, how do you remember all of these? The list of needs for things that need changing just seems to get longer and longer. And I find that most people, when they talk about praying, what they actually mean is they're praying for situations or people to change. Is that right? Would you say that's correct? You, you want either your spouse to finally change, to do what you think they ought to do to be better, or you want the situation at work or at home or your health to change. You want situations to change. Maybe it's a problem with your family. Maybe it's a problem with your marriage. Maybe it's a problem at work or at school or in your health. But either way, you want something to change. I have a sneaking suspicion, however. This is part of the reason why I say I believe that three-word statement mostly. My sneaking suspicion is that the thing that needs to change the most. The number one thing that most often needs to change when we pray is 
us. We are most often our problem. You realize that when David says, and you go back and check the context, when David, the psalmist, says, let God arise and His enemies be scattered, that when he's talking about enemies, in the context in which that was said, the enemies are things that David was describing inside of himself. He was doing crazy, stupid things. And he's saying, God, get bigger and let me come under that bigness. I think most often the thing that needs to change is us. The real goal of prayer, and again, if you can get this very beginning portion, you've got the rest of the sermon so you can snooze for the rest because especially you camp people, you need your rest right now. (laughs) The real goal of prayer isn't to get your prayers answered. And I know that's going to bother some of you because you're really praying for some very specific things. And I understand that. I am praying for some very specific things that I would like to see changed. I would like to get better. But I believe the real goal of prayer is not to get things changed. Not even to get people changed. The real goal of prayer is to get us into the presence of God. I want you to think about that for a minute. Where does real change occur? It doesn't occur because you suddenly get smarter or better or stronger. We've tried all of that. It changes when the presence of Almighty God comes to bear on you or your situations. I believe that God loves us so much that sometimes He even allows for situations to go on that drives us into prayer because He knows that when we get there, we get into His presence. And that changes us on the inside. We become like Job, who, although Job was a very godly, spiritual man, at the end of his trial where he has been praying, God, you better show up and explain yourself to me because this doesn't seem fair. At the end of that trial, his testimony, he would be great for a couple weeks from now, his testimony was, I had heard of you with the hearing of my ears. I had studied you. I'd read all about you. But now, mine eyes have seen you. I have beheld the living God. Sometimes the situations in our lives aren't caused by God, but God allows things to happen, pressures, stresses to come in order to drive us into His presence. Haven't you found honestly that in any introspective time that you spend with God, which I know most of us don't, we're we're so busy, we we just want to give Him a one-liner and get going. But if you spend any time just Being quiet before God. Isn't it true that often God speaks to you about you? In fact, I think that's why some people don't pray. It's because they're afraid God might speak to them about them. I've had people say to me, in the middle of upheaval, and you even suggest to them, is it possible that God might be after something in you? In the midst of this, I'm not saying God's doing this to get you, but is it possible that in the midst of it, God might want to speak to you? No, no, I'm fine, just the way I am. I had somebody not too long ago when I asked them a question, I said, you know, over all this time where there was major, major upheaval, major upheaval, 
I said, over this last like year, year and a half or so, um, can you tell me, as you look back, is there anything you might have done differently? Their response to me was, absolutely not. I never made a mistake. Honestly, I wanted to run out of the room for fear that God would send lightning or something. I'm thinking, I can't get through a day without making mistakes. God allows things to happen in order to drive us into His presence. We're in a series on the book of James. You can see it there. James, faith that works. We've gone through all of the chapters. This is the last message that I'm going to be giving you in the book of James here during this series. And you can turn to James chapter 5 if you would like, if you have your Bible. James has been taking us, James is a very practically pastoral book. He writes not just about the practical things we face, but he writes as a pastor. Things that he would like to say to his people. He writes about the situations that all of us are confronted with at some point in our lives. We're all confronted with troubles. There's not a person in this room that hasn't had troubles at some point or are in the midst of it right now or you're about to go into one. He talks about troubles. He talks about temptations. Things that come against us that could lure us away from the wisdom and the grace of God. And then he talks about probably my biggest trouble. I think it's probably the biggest trouble of almost any preacher on earth, which is our tongue. We use our tongue a lot, and it can get us into trouble. I can't tell you how many times I leave meetings or how many times I even leave the service. And I, think, oh, I wish I hadn't said it that way. I wish I could have reworded that. I think I could have done better. James talks to us about trouble, temptations, our tongue. He talks to us about wisdom. Wisdom for how to handle relational problems. Which again, there's probably not a person here who hasn't had struggles. If you're married, you've had relational challenges. And he talks about wisdom, how to deal with it. And then last week we saw that he talked about wisdom and how to face life when life is just unfair and unjust. And here in chapter 5, James does an amazing thing. He takes everything that he's been talking about now for five chapters and he sums it up with one answer. He says, if you've got a problem, if you've got an issue in your life you're facing, the answer, the unequivocal, 100% true, all the time answer is you need to pray. That's what James says. You need to simply pray. Because pray gets you into the presence of God. I don't know how many of you have ever done any reading on James. James is interesting. There, there are actually, there's, there's a big debate about which James actually wrote this book. But across Christendom, the majority has fallen upon James, the half-brother of Christ, who is mentioned both in Galatians 1 and then uh, other times throughout the Scripture. He was the uh, head of the Jerusalem council because Jesus showed himself to James after his resurrection specifically. But James had a nickname that he was known for during that time period of his life. Do you know what his nickname was? No, but close. Kind of. His nickname was Camel Knees. It's true. 
He was known as Camel Knees. Not because he had ugly legs like mine. He was called Camel Knees because he spent so much time on his knees in prayer, he had developed huge calluses on his knees that made him look funny. They were all crusted out there. And he was known in the church at that time as Camel Knees. Wouldn't that be a great nickname to have? For that reason that you pray a lot. James, uh, and you, you can look, we're going to be in James 5 and verse 13. James, I'm going to give them to you first. That, that way it's easier and I don't have to go back to them again. James gives us four arenas or times or seasons or reasons for prayer that we need to have. Four, specifically. So let me give them to you really quickly and you can pay, pay attention to them as I read through the text. First is in verse 13. He says struggles, or he uses the term suffering in my translation. He says when you're going through struggles or you're suffering. And by the way, when James talks about these things that I'm going to be giving you, he's not talking about them like, well, anytime, you know, like, uh, you know, Dave's driving down the road and he gets a flat tire, that's when you, he's not, he's talking about cataclysmic stuff. So when he talks about if anybody be sick among you, he's not talking because you got the sniffles. Yes, pray because you have the snipples. I'm not saying not to do that. I'm saying that's not the context of James. James is talking about debilitating, life-threatening kinds of issues. So he first talks about struggles or suffering in verse 13. In verse 14, he talks about sickness, I just mentioned. In verse 15, he talks about sin. And again, there's not one of you here who doesn't have sin issues in your life. Things that God is still working on in you. That's not to have shame or guilt or fear. That's to recognize, here too, I need the grace of God. And then finally, in verse 17, he talks about significant material need. He uses the example of they had no rain. No rain. So there's significant material need. If I don't make it here, I don't know if I'm going to make it at all. So, James chapter 5, let's look at verse 13. Follow along with me. James 5, 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Seven times in these six verses, James gives you times and places where we need to pray. How to pray. First, he tells us, tells us to pray. He says, us. Let us pray. The next time, he calls for leadership to pray. The third time, he tells us what kind of prayer. He says, the prayer of faith. The fourth time, he speaks about body praying, corporate praying. He says, one another. The fifth time, he refers to the attitude of prayer. Fervent prayer. The sixth time, he speaks of earnest prayer. He says, Elijah prayed earnestly. And the last time, 
he speaks of repeated prayer. He said, and he prayed again. So that's kind of like the larger context of what we're looking at today. This em- emphasis, by the way, that James gives on prayer is not new. I mean, if you guys remember back in Isaiah, God himself said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So James takes this theme of prayer and he picks it up. He says, all these things that you're facing, all these things that I've given you wise counsel on over five chapters, the real answer, the core of it all, is you need to pray more. Now, that sounds good, right? Pray. Yeah, of course. But if you're honest, how many of us really do pray for our situations, our circumstances, for our own hearts in the midst of them? Or are you like me that a lot of times when you go to prayer, you spend more time moaning and groaning and complaining to God? You spend more time whining about things. You spend more time stewing about things than actually praying. James says what we need to do is prayer. Prayer is the answer. It's kind of like having all the ingredients to make a cake, but no pan to put it in. Or maybe a better way to say it would be, it'd be like having this car. Like we, we recently had to go shopping for a new car because for the first time in my life, my car actually caught fire and blew up. It was a lot of fun. It was really interesting. Uh, you know, somebody comes out and says, uh, sir, I think your car is on fire. And I look, I says, I think you're right. So we had to go looking for a car, and you can go looking for a lot of things. I don't know how many of you guys have ever been car shopping, but I mean, I mean, it, it's a big deal. What what kind of accessories do you want in that car? Uh, do you want dual controlled air conditioning so you can have one on each side so that your spouse can be happy at the same time you're happy? Uh, do you want computer programmable seats so that when you get in and you push your remote, it automatically has that seat exactly where you want it to be and you don't have to adjust the steering wheel or anything else. What is it that you want as an accessory? You can have it all. You can have the top of the line. I don't know what would be the top. What's, what is, what's an expensive car? Tesla? Okay. Tesla. Okay, at their age of life, Tesla is the big deal. I don't know why. It's only like $100,000, $130,000. But you got the Tesla, Tesla. And it's like you got everything. But what good does your brand new car do you if your batteries run down and you've got no gas? Prayer is the fuel, the power that helps us actually to deal with our situations in life. And all throughout his letter, James is telling us all these things He gives us actually, if you read through James, he gives us what are called 60 imperatives. 60 commands of things that we should do. But at the end of the book, he says, do you want to know the best? The most important? You need to pray. You just simply need to pray. That's why Jesus says, I can do nothing without Him. Prayer puts us into the presence of God. Uh, James is, is making it clear that none of us, and I want you to hear this, not one of us, and I'm looking at each of you, not one of us can do this Christian life without God's presence. You can't. It, it's like an oxymoron. Why would you call yourself a Christian if you're not going to have His presence in your heart and life? And something that you dwell upon, something that you walk in and live in every single day. 
this reality of prayer, things that we need. Most often, we use prayer like the uh, bat phone. When I got a problem, I pick up the bat phone and I call God, and God said, would you fix this thing, please? And we're like, um, I don't think that's what God means when He talks about prayer. Prayer actually means to invite the presence of God to do whatever He wants to do in and through the situation. It might be, let me put it just really honestly, I have learned more about God and seen my life change more from the hard things I've gone through than all the victories. I've gone through some really hard things in my life, things I didn't know if I was going to make it. I can remember times when, uh, out of shame, I've hidden away. Wouldn't talk to anybody. I can remember times in desperation, laying on my face before God with this shag, ugly orange and yellow shag carpet, just soaking it with tears because I so desperately need God. These were horrendous times in my life, but God used them to change me. And I think James is telling us the same thing. These things that we're going through, all the stuff that He's given us imperatives to, all the struggles we have, are an opportunity for us to invite and enter into the presence of God. Prayer is about this, simply. A passion for His presence. It's a passion for Him. It's not... We treat prayer... Like it's transactional. You know what a transaction is. I go into the store, I give the cashier a certain amount of money, and she lets me take a product. We treat prayer like that. It's transactional. I'll give God my time, I'll say the words, God, you're obligated to give me this. When prayer was never intended to be transactional, it was always intended to be relational where we enter into a deep relationship with God. Uh, prayer, in fact, if you, if you want points, because I know you guys are used to me doing points, this one I wasn't going to do any on purpose, but I thought, well, I can't do that. So my number one point is this. Prayer is not about just communication. It's about communion. It's about just being with God. When Karen and I were dating, uh, some of you guys don't know, but the lady sitting in the back there in that back chair, uh, raise your hand. There, that's Karen. That's my wife. She's been my wife for 39 years, and we've got another 39 to go. Um, when, when Karen and I were dating, we lived far away from each other, and we wanted to stay in contact. Back in those days, I know this is going to be hard for some of you to even realize, but we did not have cell phones. It's true. There were no cell phones at that time. We couldn't do texting. We couldn't, there was no Facebook. There was no messaging. If you wanted to message, you had to, if you were long distance, if you wanted to message one another, you had to do it one of two ways, and we did both. We would write letters to each other. We actually took pen and put it to paper. Do you know the cramps my hands got? But it was worth it, because I wanted connection with her. But the other way you would do this was, you would call on the phone. I can't remember. Uh, Karen was uh, at one point in New York City, I think it was, and she was calling me. And she gets home and her dad asks to meet with her. 
because he got the phone bill. It was me? Oh, okay. <laughs> I've wiped that from my memory. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about you paid big bucks for this stuff. But we would call. Get this. This is my point. We would call. And if you call one another often enough and you talk enough, have you found that sometimes you run out of things to say? You do. If you're at all human, I've said everything I can think of. I told you what my whole day was. I can't think of another thing. I come home from work today. And Cameron will say, so any news? My stock and trade answers. Nope, didn't do anything. Nope. You've been gone for 10 hours and you don't, you have nothing? Nope. I can't be gone from her for two minutes and she has a whole story. But we would get to a point where we had nothing to say. And we would still call one another. And there would be times, her dad would tell you if he was here, her dad would tell you that there were times when he would walk by her room with her door open. Again, we're still dating, so she's living home with mom and dad. Walk by her room, door open. She's laying on her bed with her feet up on the wall with the phone to her ear saying nothing. And her dad says, what are you doing? And again, all of these are long-distance calls. He says, what are you doing? We're just listening to one another breathe. Come on, girls. You should say, aww. <laughs> we were so sweet in the day. Here's my point. It wasn't about communication. Those calls were about communion. It was being in one another's presence. Can I tell you something else silly? We've been married now for 39 years. Uh, obviously, been together longer than that with dating and all of that. Karen, if you came to our house, we have the living room. I sit in the living room at night with the laptop on my lap, and I watch mostly Matlock, I'm sorry. But uh, I watch Matlock, and I'm on my laptop. I will sometimes Skype with people in China, Africa, all over the place, Thailand. Uh, I, I will Skype with people. I will be uh, talking to different friends and stuff like that. I have all that going on. And Karen is in office. It used to be Jeremy's bedroom. We have now made that Karen's office. It's at the other end of the house. So we're not even next to each other. We're not sitting close to each other. We're not even in the same room, but we're together. And part of the reason I tell you this is there are times when Karen has to go away for a night. Maybe she's going to go have dinner with a friend and maybe shopping with a friend. I don't know. She's gone. I'm in the house. Normally, again, I don't, I don't even see her. I cannot see Karen for a couple of hours because she's in her office. But this time, she's gone. And after about a half an hour, I find myself getting up and wandering the house. And I'll say to myself, what are you doing? And without even thinking about it, my mind says, I'm looking for my wife. I know she's not there. I'm not senile yet. Well, a little, a little. Um, I miss her. Even though on a normal basis she's in another part of the house, we're still together. That's communion. And that's what God wants out of us. Prayer is about just being with God. James says this, if you draw near to God, He will draw near to you. 
If you're a thinking person, you're going to say, how can that be? Did not God promise I will never leave you nor forsake you? What do you mean you'll come near? I thought you said you'd always be with me. Well, here's the point. In ways that you and I will never understand, the God of the universe who needs no one and no thing, if He did, He wouldn't be God. He is all-sufficient in Himself. But the God of the universe desires communion with you. He wants more. And He has planted... In the Old Testament, this is like an Old Testament word for New Testament believers. In the Old Testament, the wise man said, Solomon, the wise man said, God has planted eternity in your hearts. What's eternity? It's the desire for more of God. Because that's what you're going to do. For eternity, you're going to spend it in God's presence. So James is telling us what we need is His presence more than anything else. And what we need is not His omnipresence where He is everywhere at all times with the totality of His presence. That's a fancy theological term for God's everywhere at all times. What we want, what we long for, is not just God's omnipresence. We long for His manifest presence where God shows up. I was out walking the parking lot the other night uh, I know it sounds stupid walking the parking lot, but I was. Uh, I mean, we get home and it could, looks like it might rain or something like that, or it's getting really dark. And sometimes walking the sidewalks at night can be a real adventure because you end up taking headers because the sidewalks are all over. So I'm walking the parking lot and no intention otherwise. I do what I often do. I pray, I recite scripture. I just, I'm walking, thinking. And it's like in the midst of walking the parking lot, God showed up in our parking lot. It was one of the most amazing, wonderful times I've had in a long time. It was wonderful. There are times when life gets busy for all of us. And like Jesus did, we need to just go away to be with God. We do. The way I do it is this. And I know, again, you guys are going to think I'm really senile, but it's not. Um, what I do is I get in my car, get away from the office where I'm in front of my computer because my computer reminds me I have work to do. I get away from everything. I get in my car and I drive to Walmart parking lot to the far end. So if you see me park way down there, just leave me alone. I drive down to Walmart parking lot, get way down there. I used to drive up and park up on the roads up above and invariably somebody's going to stop and say, are you okay? You need help? So if I park in the parking lot, that's normal. I park in the parking lot just to stop all of the stuff that goes on around. No phone calls, nobody just stopping in to visit, just to get away and to be with God. And there are times when I am there when I have amazing encounters with God. And God speaks and gives some clarity. There's other times when I get done, it feels like, Nothing has happened. But when I leave the parking lot, I start my car and I'm going to leave, I say something like this, God, it's just been wonderful just being with you. Because sometimes, you don't have to have a whole bunch of words. It's just being in His presence. And for me, I, I'm a bit of a doer. I like to do for God. Kind of what I've given my life to. 
It's a whole lot harder to make time to be with God. But that's what this is about. The psalmist put it this way, In my distress, I called to the Lord. He said later, Hear my cry, O God. Attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to You. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. We used to sing a song years ago that went something like this. In His presence, in His presence, there is peace. In His presence, in His presence, there is joy. I will linger, I will stay in Your presence day by day. And Your likeness will be seen in me. It's lingering in the presence of God. I used to work uh, at a uh, factory in Geneva, New York. It was called Zotos. It made hair permanents for women. It was one of the worst jobs I ever had because of the smell. I mean, you, how many of you ladies ever had a hair permanent? They stink! Thinking, who does that to your hair? If they smell that bad, what do they do to your hair? But I'm there, and the smell of ammonia, bleach, is so strong, it gives you like instantaneous headaches. But here's my point. When I would leave, and I would just go about my daily stuff, I'd go to my next job. Invariably, somebody would say to me, I smell, I smell bleach. And they're trying to figure out who smells like bleach. It was me. I didn't get it on me. I was just in its presence. In the same way, you get into the presence of God, something inside of you changes. It's not about just communication. It's about communion. Um, Karen and I have been together for over 40 years now with dating included. And when we are able, right now it's not so much because of having to take care of her mom, but when we're able and we go on a vacation, we like to drive. I like to drive. I don't mind driving. I enjoy it. And we like to drive. And when we're driving, we do a lot of talking together. It's a lot of fun. But here's the point. There are times on that drive, we're driving to Myrtle Beach. After about 8, 10 hours, you run out of stuff to talk about. But we have learned just to be comfortable being together. Just together. That's what James is talking about. So number one, it's about communion with God. Number two, and then we're going to end here really quickly because I know you campers got stuff you got to do. Uh, number two, communion is also an issue of our relationship with one another. It's about communion with God, but it's also about communion with one another. It's hard to really pray. It's hard, let me say it again, to really pray. I'm not talking about fake prayers. You know where people... Have you ever heard somebody pray with a different voice than they speak normally? Well, I got this going. I think, what is the deal? If you're really going to pray, it's hard to pray and not be honest. And in being honest, you expose your heart and your life. I think that's why some couples don't pray together. Is because they're afraid that if we pray, we're actually going to have to be true and honest before God. There are times when Karen and I uh, have spats. I'll call them spats. That sounds better than arguments, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. We'll call them spats. 
Uh, there's times when Kara and I have disagreements. That's even better. You should have helped me, man. Disagreements. Just misunderstandings. And Kayron will say, this is, this is usually after you know, a, a little bit of silence, a little bit of thinking back and forth. She'll say, maybe we should pray. And my response is one of two things. Either, no, I don't want to. Or, fine, you pray. I told you, it doesn't get any better than what you see here. This is it. I never put on airs because somebody's going to find out sometime. And so I'll tell her, no, you pray. Why? Because I know if I pray, I'm going to have to be honest. I'm going to have to say to God, God, I'm really mad right now and I don't feel like changing. I think she's wrong and I wish you would change her. (laughs) And I know invariably that's not going to go over real well with God. He's going to put the finger back at me. I think that's why some people don't like to pray with others. There's something about corporate prayer, coming together and being honest with God, that actually shakes the world. In the early church, it says they gathered together, and the place where they were gathered was literally shaken, like an earthquake. And from that point on, the testimony about the early church was they were turning the world upside down for Jesus. We have a prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. It's called the Lord's Prayer, but it's really, more correctly, the Disciples' Prayer. And it starts out with two words. What are those two words? Our. Our. Father. Not my Father. Our. Father. How big is that our for you? Does it incorporate other churches in your area? We have said again and again, God's given us a DNA, a personality here at Family Life Church, but we are not the only church in town. And if somehow you come here and this doesn't work for you some way, we will help you find a home where you can plug in and become a vital part of that church, living your life for Christ. We're not in competition. We're not in comparison. We're not against anyone. We are for God and what He wants to do. I believe the same thing can happen in Warsaw, in Wyoming County, and in the surrounding region as happened in the early church where we can turn the world upside down for Christ. Let me finish by telling you about a young man by the name of Ben Coleman. Any of you ever heard of Ben? Ben Coleman. Uh, And this is ending. He's a cross-country runner for the T.L. Hanna High School cross-country team in Anderson, South Carolina. He's famous. He is famous because he is touted to be the slowest high school cross-country runner in America. It's true. You can Google him. He runs the 5K in 51 minutes. The winning score is usually right around, a winning time is usually right around 15 or 16 minutes. He runs so slowly that people running backwards run faster. Walkers like me could beat him. But the reason why Ben Coleman is famous is he has cerebral palsy, which doesn't affect his intellect because he gets straight A's in school. But it affects his body. To quote him, he walks like a drunken sailor. He staggers all over the place. And when he is running a race again and again, 
he trips over the cracks in the track. And when he trips, his mind cannot make his body respond fast enough, and he ends up face planting, losing teeth, bleeding, gashes in his head again and again. But he finishes every race. He never quits. The reason why I'm telling you this story is that something unique happened in Ben Coleman's life and in the life of his team. Ben, when he started racing, was as I described. He would fall, he would bleed, he would finish last. Sometimes he wouldn't finish just last, he would finish after dark had come. But an amazing thing happened. His brother, who was the star of the team, who did not have cerebral palsy, would race to the end line, win the race, and race back to run beside his brother so his brother would not fall anymore. And then, Ben's 13-year-old sister said, I'm just here cheering him on. What if I run with Ben? So she gets on the other side of Ben, and she runs right beside Ben so that he will never again have to fall. And then a cool thing happened. All of Ben's teammates, this was a guy's cross-country team, all of his teammates thought, this guy has more guts and more tenacity than anybody we know. So when they all finish their race, they run back and they surround him so he can't fall. And then an interesting thing happened. That, that was cool enough. The opposing team began to see what was going on. And when they would finish their race, they would come back and surround all of them. And then the girls' race team didn't even have a race that night. They said, we're getting in on this. And they surround everybody. They said it's like a mob is going down the track. All because none of them want Ben to get hurt or to finish alone. For those of you that might be sports fans, Hannah High School is also known for something else famous. They have an assistant football coach who has been there for now going on like 30 years. His name is Radio. He's had a book and a movie made about him. This is a culture of a school. I'm suggesting to you, why can't the culture of the church be like that? Where instead of picking apart things in people's lives, I got stuff wrong with me. I don't need you to tell me. I already know more than you know. And you don't need me to tell you everything that I see you doing wrong. What we need is a bunch of people saying, I believe you can do it. You can finish this race. And it's no longer than about Family Life Church versus Valley Chapel. It's now we're going to be the church of God in Warsaw, New York. That's what James is talking about. When you come together, pray. Pray as a body, as brothers and sisters in Christ. I believe the greatest danger that the church faces today is not sin in the church. Because I believe Jesus made sufficient sacrifice to deal with all of our sin. I think the greatest danger we have is silence. We don't pray. We complain. We moan. We chew the mental cut of our problems. But we don't really pray. Failure to cry out to God in prayer. 
Would you stand with me? This is the end of our series on James.